to another episode of the Unbound and Rewound Horror Podcast, where we dive deeper into every horror book and movie for a closer look at their bone-chilling anatomy. I am Avery, your queerfully fearfully host, and this week kicks off the first week of Black History Month and the first week of my Black History series. You know, as a Black Horror Podcast, I couldn't just let black history go on without me like hello i'm ringing it in the right way um and so this episode is the very first of the series there will be a total of i think there's actually only one other episode in this month um which i do have a special guest for but we'll talk about that in a little bit um or you'll learn about it on my instagram it's top secret right now Make sure you're following me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Your Horror Podcast for the latest horror content and podcast updates, such as what to expect for every new episode. Before we get into any Black History conversations, we do have to do a little catching up. So, what are we streaming, reading, and watching? I recently finished the Chucky series. The well, I'm caught up to season three. Um, I think the remaining episodes for season three are coming out soon in March or something. But I like how every season seems to get better. You know, the writing, the acting, the gore, the kills, the um, plot, like everything. Everything about it. It's a lot of fan service, but also it is something new. Um, on its own, which I appreciate and I respect. So I've enjoyed it. I started, I think, on Monday of last week. I was on season two, episode one. And then by Wednesday, no, by Thursday, I was done with the current episodes of season three. So it's a very bingeable show for me, at least. If you haven't checked it out, make sure you do if you have Peacock. Um, because, yeah, it's so fun, so funny. Chucky, as always, is hilarious. Um, and even Glenn shows up. Come on, they them. Um, I'm also watching, let's see, what else? What else am I streaming? Honestly, I haven't had too much time to watch any shows beyond that, quite frankly. Um, everything else that I've been watching, I finally watched Eden Lake for the first time. That was ex- Well, I didn't know what to expect, honestly. I think part of the reason why it took me so long to watch it was because I knew it had a female lead and I knew that it was based off of torture, essentially, cat and mouse torture. And, you know, most movies that have that sort of subgenre context to them involve violence against women that I don't necessarily enjoy watching, (laughs) at least... Every American movie that's done that has done it incorrectly, but leave it to the Brits to do it artfully and tastefully, and also Jack O'Connell is in it, and I'm a huge fan of him ever since Skins, and it makes sense as to why um, he got casted in Skins after Eden Lake. I looked up the dates to see if they aligned, and I mean, I think for the most part, it 
could potentially have worked out to where it's like the people of Skins saw Eden Lake and were like, oh, we need that kid for this new season of Skins because, wow, what a, like, ugh, he's the spawn of Satan in that movie. And it's not a happy ending, which I, I appreciate, honestly. I appreciate movies like that. Not everyone needs to be a final girl. Not everyone can be a final girl either. So, like, yeah, I, sorry to spoil it if I already did. Um, spoilers. It has been out for a while, though. And honestly, no, because, because, listen, um, the movie is so much more, watch, like, worth watching than just the ending, too. So, yeah, I don't know what to tell you go check it out, go watch it, it's on Tubi. And reading, I've been reading This Wretched Valley, which, surprise, I will be interviewing the author of that book. It recently just came out January 16th, um, so make sure you, you know, if you have the time, read it. If you don't have the time, fine, add it to your, to, to your TBR, and then don't miss out on the episode with me and Jenny Kiefer, the author of This Wretched Valley. It takes place in Kentucky, and she is also a native Kentuckian, so you know we will be yapping. We are going to be yapping on this podcast about Kentucky, all things Southern, and horror because she owns her own um, horror bookstore in Louisville, Kentucky, so very excited for that. But after that, um, I have a few other books lined up, really. Um, horror movie by Paul Trimblay, Trimblay, Trimbali, you know, um, he's the one who wrote, what is it, um, Cabin at the End of the World, is that which one it is? I always get it confused with (laughs) Last House on the Left, um, and I don't know why, I really don't know why, I think it's just a directional thing for me, um, End of the World, End of the Street, I don't know, um, but that one, and then Carmila, the original lesbian vampire book. Um, so I'm just, I just have a bunch of horror books that I'm so excited to be reading. Um, and I think there's another one. It's called Just My Type. It's also a lesbian vampire book that I will start reading soon, too. Uh, it's a great year for books. You all get on your Zoom, start reading, because if you're not reading, what are you doing? You can read and watch at the same time, just so you know. Beyond that, I really, I've been wanting to see Founders Day. But, you know, I have, I have a bone to pick with um, the people who, who choose the movie times and the movie locations. Because why is it that I can't see Founders Day unless I want to go at 1030 on a Tuesday evening? I have a nine to five job. Like, I'm, I'm an adult, you know? I have things to do um and I can't be up at 10 30 at night to watch a movie that has 20 minute previews before the actual movie starts let's do better you know it's 2024 I don't get why we're still having this issue um people should be able to see the movies that they want to see so you know I hope this gets to the right people's ears I hope you hear it I hope you feel bad and I hope it makes you rethink your decisions in the future Um, but that is all that I have been consuming. That's the, all of the media that I've been consuming recently. But if you're interested to see what other horror movies, what other books, whatever, what other shows I'm watching, um, you can't really log shows on Letterboxd, but I think, I think soon we're going to be getting that. I feel like there was an update recently that said we will be getting that soon. So fingers crossed. 
Um, but yeah, if you're interested, make sure you check out my letterboxed at AveryCOF. You can also find me on Goodreads at AveryCOF uh, to see my reviews, what I'm talking about, what I'm reading. And make sure you tell me what you're watching and reading too. You can always hit me up on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, or you can just leave a little, a little, you know, Q&A answer at the bottom of this episode if you're listening on Spotify. So, without further ado, oop, further ado, um, we will be getting into this week's episode. Now, like I said, it's a black history, um, black history of horror, and just like I did with my queer history of horror, black women in horror, I want to give an overarching history um, of the genre and how it pertains to black people. Um, before we get into the movies that I chose to discuss, because I chose three movies that I feel um, are relevant to this topic and help to help to understand like where we've come from as black people in horror and where we're going in the future. Um, all of the movies that I've chosen, and this is not a biased take of mine, but everyone believes it. They're all great movies. Um, I'm not going to tell you what they are right now because element of surprise, but stay tuned for those. Keep listening and we shall dive in. So starting out this conversation, I thought that I would quote the famously infamous Tanana Rivdu. Um, as she says that black history is black horror and to understand what she means by that it just essentially means like everything that black people have experienced in history is black horror like in all of the movies that I'm going to talk about all of the little little like tidbits in this like overarching history conversation uh, that we're diving into like all of it, lynchings, the Tuskegee experiment, um, all of the different protests, all of the different, the civil rights movement, all of it is black horror essentially and it finds its place in horror throughout the history of it as well. So to best understand the history of our identity within film and particularly horror, we got to talk about the birth of a nation any right-minded horror fan would identify this to be a horror movie anyways. At the time, it kind of was. For white people, they saw the first violent, deviant depiction of black men and believed black men were a danger to white women. For black people, well, it was only the start to a long journey of stereotypes that were hard to wash clean. King Kong released a little under 15 years after D.W. Griffith's propaganda film, because that is what it is, propaganda, and the influence is stark. It's one of the classic horror films that, when viewed from a different angle, tells the story of a black person's experience being taken from their home country and brought somewhere new for the purpose of exploitation. Surely you know the story of King Kong and his ill fate. Spoiler, it's the white woman's fault. This isn't the last time it happens in horror, either. Candyman and Night of the Strangler, 1972, directed by Joy N. Hawk Jr., are two other examples where race relations are the cause of death to the black male character of the movie. These were only added to the pile of movies with the sacrificial Negro trope. Son of Ngagi is reported as the first black-made horror film, 
and it features a black woman scientist. And we support black women in STEM on this podcast. Richard Kahn directed it and Spencer Williams Jr. wrote the screenplay. They were known for working with all black casts and combating the minstrelsy in showbiz. If you're unaware of what minstrelsy is or what minstrel shows are, they are just white people in blackface performing for the sake of other white people. Um, That's all there is to know about that. It's one of the first on-screen depictions of black characters being authentically themselves. It's crazy to think that something as simple as a middle-class black wedding party could be revolutionary. But for this era of film and this time in America, it was a large stepping stone just to see black people being themselves on screen. The more popular black horror tropes, Magical Negro, The Servant, The Comic Relief, found in pre-code films, pre-code as in pre-haze code, um, and beyond, weaseled their way by the fif- weaseled their way out by the 50s. Not because Hollywood realized how racist they were, but because they found another way to be racist. Because of the space race and the fascination with all of STEM, many horror films took place in laboratories. Apparently, black people just didn't belong there. So during this time, you saw even less black characters on screen. Cue the black exploitation. But before that, George A. Romero had something to say. Mm, not intentionally, at least. When Romero casted Dwayne Jones as Ben in 1968's Living Night of the Living Dead, he did it solely for the fact that Dwayne was the best choice for the role. However, because of the momentum of the civil rights movement, Ben's character arc and demise were perceived in a way that spoke to every black American watching. It served to be sort of a revenge film for black people with Dwayne Jones slapping white people and killing white zombies. This was the first time a black character was leading with dignity and charge until the end. It was the representation of Night of the Living Dead that created a hunger for more in black audiences. So, from one decade to the next, the 70s is full of black films, sometimes made by black people with black actors, but without the proper representation we got from Dwayne Jones. It's this era of black cinema that created the pimp, gangsta, seductress, and authority figure tropes we've often seen in black characters. I feel like everything else that I could say on the topic of black horror history, black exploitation, and black horror tropes has already been said in some of my other episodes. If you want to hear more on those, check out my episodes on Black Queer Horror, Black Women in Horror, The Blackening, and The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. To segue, I wanted to look at three different movies from different eras of Black Horror. This first one is often roped in with black exploitation films simply because of the similar production value and timing. However, it's far from it. This first one that I want to talk about is Ganja and Hess from 1973, and it's directed by Bill Gunn. It follows Dwayne Jones from Night of the Living Dead, who stars as anthropologist Hess Green, who is stabbed with an ancient ceremonial dagger by his unstable assistant, who's also played by director Bill Gunn, bestowing upon him the blessing of immortality and the curse of an unquenchable thirst for blood. When the assistant's beautiful and outspoken wife, Ganja, comes searching for her missing husband, she and Hess form an an unexpected partnership. Together, they explore just how much power blood holds. And you know I love me a vampire movie, especially a black vampire movie. I love it. And I really, it's disappointing how long it's taken me 
to watch this movie, but I had to start a free trial just to watch it. So, and I finally did. It was a beautifully made movie. Um, it's considered an art house film now, at least not, you know, when it was released, but it did win set, like it, it won an award at the Cannes Film Festival when it did release. Um, there were people at the time that saw it for what it was, and there were other people who, you know, didn't actually agree with it. Um, the original production company, I think it was Kelly, Kelly Jordan, Kelly, I think that's what the production company was called. They ended up selling the movie rights to a different company that then cut the original film runtime down um, to maybe like 88 minutes, I think. Um, and it was mainly just because like it didn't align with the vampire movie that people wanted or that people were used to. It was more of an artful, it was like more of an artful way to see vampires compared to the white vampire movies we've seen like Dracula or Nosferatu. In a time where it was difficult to even get black actors on screen and black exploitation films were on the rise, deepening those tropes and stereotypes, Bill Gunn tells a story of black mysticism with beautiful depictions of the natural African identity. As every other black film of the time, the producer's main intention was to take advantage of the hungry black moviegoers looking for new black films. After the success of Blackula, a black vampire film seemed like the perfect foundation to jump from. However, Gunn had other plans. He didn't even want to make this movie. However, he saw it as an opportunity to use the blood as an analogy for addiction. Hess in this movie has an arrogance about him that comes from his wealth and privileged education, unlike the violent criminals and pimps that other black films of the time had. Ganja is a woman of power that demands the attention and respect of the room. She has the autonomy that many black women in films during the black exploitation era didn't have. She also has a softness about her that acts not in opposition of her aggression, but as a safety net almost. It gives her more dimensions which led her to become a black feminist film icon. In both of their experiences with the vampirism, they stand in opposition of each other, and it perhaps is one of the first time, first times the intersectionality of being black and a woman in a white patriarchal world is recognized in film. It's her intersectionality and ability to survive the Christian-based society by sticking to her cultural roots that leads her to thrive as a vampire, whereas Hess suffers from the affliction and seeks salvation, which ends up in his demise. The second film I wanted to talk about moving further down in the timeline is 1991's The People Under the Stairs directed by Wes Craven. Y'all know I love this movie too. It is in my top four on Letterboxd. It will never move. It will always stay there and I love Wes Craven. Now this movie follows a young boy named Fool. We'll get into that later. Um, who helps his sister's boyfriend break into the house of their money-grabbing landlords. While they manage to get in, they can't get out. The owners return, and a game of cat and mouse ensues. Locked inside the house, unable to escape, the boy witnesses the horrific habits of the owners, the numerous caged people under the stairs, and their imprisoned daughter. The movie was partially inspired by a true story of two black burglars who unintentionally led local law enforcement to discover the children of the homeowners who had been locked away. By the time this film came out, black exploitation films had been left in the dust. 
black actors were finally being put in horror films that any other actor would. Did they always survive the same way the white virginal vinyl girl did? No, but at least they were there. Before Get Out, and what cinephiles have coined as quote-unquote woke horror, Craven's People Under the Stairs provided a cutthroat satire of the Reaganomics that benefited the white and cut accessible programming in the cities with large black and brown communities. As white people moved into suburbs, people of color remained in the cities and in apartment buildings owned by those same people. The Slumlords and Craven's film own Fool's Building, which the tenants recently learned will be torn down for fancier condos. Sounds familiar? We see this even now in cities like New York and the Bay Area, the commentary of racial prejudice and class division. Though I love this movie and Craven's intentions, it can't be ignored that the film still suffers from those black stereotypes of quote-unquote living in the ghetto. And then this third movie, which I recently watched again for the first time since 2008, and I have to say... Perhaps it is the best of its franchise, quite frankly. I don't know. The verdict is out. But The First Purge, in 2008, directed by Gerard McMurray. It is the first purge of the franchise to be directed by someone who was not the original creator. And I feel like I read somewhere that the original creator kind of handed off this project to a black director. Um because, I mean, essentially he wrote the script for it because he recognized that the majority of audiences who did identify and understand the film for what he wanted it to be were black and brown audiences. This film is a prequel depicting the origins of the annual purge, a 12-hour span once a year in which all crime in America, including murder, rape, and arson, is legal. It originates as an experiment confined to Staten Island, with the promise that those who stay on the island for its duration will be paid a large sum of money. But a new political party, the New Founding Fathers, is determined to get the results they want by any means necessary. This movie wants us to believe that Staten Island is comprised of black and brown people, largely black and brown people, but that is definitely one of the widest parts of the greater New York area. I, you know, just like I just I'm not gonna sit on it and be upset about it because I understand it's just plot armor, but still. The Purge franchise from the get-go has something to say about how this country feels about and treats black Americans. The first one followed a family who provided refuge to a black man being hunted by a group of wealthy white people. The second one slightly amplified this idea of black and other people of color being the main targets for this national cleansing. The first Purge, which it is actually the fourth film, the third film I think is President's Day, I want to say, um, president or election, something, anyways. The first Purge went above and beyond to show this and how historically America has relied on black struggles to obtain power over the community. The Tuskegee experiment in 1932 took place in Macon, Alabama. In case you have not heard about this, the U.S. Public Health Service conducted an experiment to study untreated syphilis in black men. Out of a total of 600 men, 399 of them had the disease, but they didn't know of the true purpose for the experiment. Many of them lived in poverty and agreed to participate with the promise 
of free meals, medical attention, and burial insurance. They believed they were being treated for bad blood, but they received no treatment at all. The true brutality of this experiment and why it caused generational trauma for the black community requires an understanding of the scientific racism that's existed since at least since at least 1865. The people of Macon were lied to about the purpose of the experiment and were prevented from seeking real treatment, all for the sake of the experiment. This is just a broad overview, but please do look further into this experiment and the historical relevance, but for the sake of this conversation, it's relevant because the NFFA literally lied to the residents of Staten Island. It was just you had to stay on the island and you could win the money. You know, people who wanted to participate could participate. Just like um, the U.S. Public Health Service, the NFFA were not seeing the results they wanted, and so they intervened and they tried to conduct the experiment and get the results they wanted by any means necessary. They kept the men who wanted treatment, who needed treatment, they kept them from receiving that because it would affect the results of their, of their experiment, similar to the NFFA. This film is considered part of the quote-unquote woke era of horror, and no, not in the same way that Republican conservatives use the word. It's a post-get-out black horror film that attempts and achieves to rewrite the nuances of those tropes that were created and milked for decades. The introductory scenes are reminiscent of the sparked political and Black Lives Matter protests ranging from 2012 and on. Once the NFFA calls in ex-military men, police officers, and the KKK to spark more violence than what the participating purgers are offering, it becomes all too real for those black and brown viewers who have understood the franchise creator's intentions all along. I feel like this was a relatively very short episode, um, but maybe that's just because I was really prepared. <laughs> really prepared, I talked fast, and I was really excited. Um, yeah, I that is all. That's all I have for this episode. But I felt like all of those, all of those movies aligned um, for the sake of racial inequality, class division, um, and wealth in America, and the way that like historically, America, white America, and the government have always understood and have been very aware of the wealth inequality between black and brown people and themselves. And it's one reason why it makes sense that white people are always at the top of the, the food chain, so to speak. And they want to try to keep black and brown people below them so that they can continue to have the power over them that we see in the first purge and in people under the stairs. In Ganja and Hess, we don't see this. But it's because of those black, those black horror tropes that it's, you know, nice to see the opposite end of it for once. Um, so, yeah, I hope that, I mean, maybe you've seen The First Purge, maybe you've seen The People Under the Stairs, but you haven't seen Ganja and Hess. Maybe you haven't seen any of these movies, but my goal was to talk about newer movies that I hadn't brought to the podcast before, um, most of them are all made by black people except for people under the stairs listen Wes Craven had good intentions I love him 
what can I say? Um, you know, Ganjin has being made by Bill Gunn at the time that it was um, on such a small budget, but it it offered the opportunity for Bill Gunn to be experimental, and that's why it's considered an art house film because, I mean in retrospect like it would he was just he had to be smart with the way he spent his money and that was all <laughs> that was all it was but I mean at the same time look look what we got like he was a genius um so yeah I hope that you're able to check out these films and all black history month just consume black media consume those black horror movies from today and from the black exploitation era um, check out Blackula, check out Scream, Blackula, Scream, check out Abby, check out, you know, any black horror movie that you've had on your list forever. Um, you know, this is the month to, I mean, obviously, Black History Month is every month, but if, if it, if it hasn't been every month for you for whatever reason, um, make sure you surround yourself with black media this month and support black creatives in any way that you can, um, yeah, because black filmmakers are on the rise. Black filmmakers are coming up. Daniel Kaluuya just had his directorial debut. Very excited for that. I, I don't know if it's on Netflix yet, but it's coming to Netflix nonetheless. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's all, that's all I have to say. But have a great Black History Month, y'all. Um, you know, if you're black, if you're black, make sure make sure you got people paying for your for your food um, and your coffee, and your bus fare, and, you know, you know what I'm saying, like, this, this is our month, um, if you're not black, make sure you're paying for your friend's food, for your friend's bus fare, <laughs> um, you know, this is the month of reparation, so if you're a true ally, well, it's time to put your money where your mouth is, um, but yeah, anyways, thank you so much for listening, thank you for supporting, um, always appreciate it, always appreciate, you know, um, hearing what you all think about the episodes and what you all take away from them, so make sure you, if you're feeling it, make sure you drop down below in the Q&A portion of this episode on Spotify, your thoughts on the episode, what you liked, what you didn't like, um, is there anything else? No, no, I will see you in two weeks, I will definitely try to post a Substack newsletter, can't make any promises because somehow somehow like I'm like mm, yeah let me restructure the podcast so that I can fit fit as much in as possible and eventually maybe life will get slower and no it doesn't really life does not get any slower so yeah I will definitely try my hardest but I plan to be very active on TikTok this month I really really do um so I'm wanting to do a whole black trope series where I'm talking about all the different black tropes and I'll be using um, the Black Man Dies First book by um, Robin Smith and Mark H. Harris um, for support, which is also what I used for this episode too. I also used Robin Smith's um, horror noir documentary on Shudder. If you haven't checked that out, make sure you check that out. Uh, so good. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's all though. Happy Black History Month and I'll catch you next episode. Bye. Get your PhD in black cinema, sister soldier. Listen, I read my entertainment weekly, okay? I know my shit. Yeah.